What's up, everyone? This is Quad, and thanks for listening to another episode of MDPHD Podcast. Uh, it's a new podcast. Um, I started this podcast because I have to learn about stuff in medicine, biology, informatics, meet a lot of people, and they're very interesting. And there's a lot of information. I talk to my friends about what I'm learning, what I'm doing, and they think it's really cool. And I think there are more people out there who want to learn about these things, right? And I also think that、um, professionals also want to hear about these, you know, fundamentals, the latest in these fields, in a kind of an easy way. So what I try to do is learn,、uh, denoise, keep the essence of、uh, what's up, and share them with you. And in today's podcast, this episode, I've interviewed my classmate Santiago Sanchez. Um, he is an immigrant. He is an MD student at Stanford Medicine, and he has interesting background. Ooh, what's up, Ayala? What's up with you? I'm、uh, recording a podcast. Do you want to say hi? Oh, you're changing colors. Anyways, well, that's Ayala here.、Um, but I interviewed Santiago, and、uh, we had a really good talk. I learned a lot about him. Um, and I just hope you enjoy today's episode. So, oh, by the way, please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so, and let your friends know about this.、Um, yeah, so let's get started. It's 1 a.m., and yesterday I wanted to start the podcast because I was reading paper and I want to deliver this complicated paper in an easy way to the world. And、I'm glad that I used Anchor FM because I went to their website, made an account, made a recording, and boom, boom, bam! I have my first podcast. And tonight, I finished my second podcast with Anchor. So, if you wanna tell the world something that you're passionate about, download the free Anchor app or go to the Anchor FM to get started. Hello, Santiago. Hi, Qua. Today we have Santiago Sanchez. He is my classmate at Stanford University School of Medicine, and、uh, I've known him since the、uh, the interview. I think right, we had the same interview. That's right. Yeah, we right? did、yeah. the interview. Do you want to tell a little bit about what you do, or actually, like where you're from and just your background?、I'm、yeah,、curious. sure. So, so I um I am from Venezuela originally. Um, I was born there, and、uh, I moved to the United States、um, from Maracaibo, Venezuela, when I was、um, almost seven years old. And we moved to Houston,、mm-hmm. uh, so I spent most of my t- life actually growing up in Houston.、Uh, and I went to public school there,、um, graduated from、uh, public high school in Katy, went to UT Austin in Austin, Texas.、Mm-hmm. Um, I studied、uh, biochemistry and also、um, a major called Plan Two, which is a humanities major.、Mm-hmm. So I did I did two degrees. I did one in science and one humanities.、Mm-hmm. Um, but the research bug really bit me in college,、um, and I had some time like debating whether or not I was going to do、uh, like humanities or science for graduate school.、Mm-hmm. I considered them both. <laughs>、um, I really I really liked.、Uh, Different aspects of doing that kind of research, but I thought science appealed to me more professionally.、Um, like the humanities appealed a lot to me personally, but I, I didn't、yeah. 
I didn't feel I would enjoy it as much if it was my job. Mm. Uh, so I went with um, I went with sciences, and I did a, a master's degree after I graduated um, in Cambridge, in the UK, in chemistry. Um, Wait, time out. So yeah. you moved to U.S. Houston. Mm-hmm. I think Houston is the most diverse city in the United States. I think. If it's not San Jose, Houston is probably Houston, close. Okay, okay. Houston's probably close. So you moved there when you were seven. Did you speak English when you got there? No, I did not. I did not speak and, and, you, and I'm I'm culturally like super stupid, so I'm going to ask you some stupid questions. Sure, in Colombia, people speak Spanish, right? In where? In Colombia. In Colombia, yeah. And is that the same Spanish that we know, or or is that like accented? Because it's, you know, land is huge, right? I, yeah. I, I imagine some accents. No, we, we, yeah. So it, in Venezuela, we speak Spanish too. And in most of Latin oh, America. Oh, Venezuela. Yeah. I'm so stupid. Venezuela. That's right. We <laughs> moved to US Houston from Venezuela. Right. Gotcha. And yeah, we, we speak Spanish there. Everywhere in Latin America speaks Spanish, except for Portugal. Well, actually, there's a couple countries, but mm-hmm. um, most of them speak Spanish. And there's, um, there's dialects for sure, but it's mm-hmm. like, it's not so different that we can't understand each other. You I know? see. So, um, like, if you if you came to Cali, like San Diego or LA, right? If you see people speaking Spanish, you get you understand those, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm jealous. Yeah, it's like imagine if you like you know you go to rural West Virginia and people uh-huh. have a dialect. I you see. You go to New York, people have a dialect. It's kind of like that. It's more akin to that. There's words here and there that are uh-huh. really like specific to a certain place, but gotcha. mostly it's just like. The accent or the slang is different. Okay, okay. Well, so, so okay. Well, I speak Kazakh and I have a Kazakh dialect that I, I'm sure like nobody cares, but but it's significant. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so why did you move to US? What was the trigger? Um, so my parents, one entered and won in uh, the diversity visa lottery. I see. That's hard again. Yeah, the, it's a basically just random chance. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my my parents got it, and they thought that you know I might have like more opportunities here. Sure. So it was mostly it was mostly for me. Um, I think that if it was up to them, they would have mm-hmm. stayed. Like if they had no children, I think they would have stayed. Wait, that means like they have to restart their life here, right? Like from I mean, did your parents change job or we don't have to get into it, but 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 but. I know, like, a lot of times when we talk about, like, immigration, mm-hmm. the details matter, right? Like, it's hard. It's hard, and the details makes it even harder because it's, yeah. it sucks. Um, was it tough to transition? Yeah, I mean, it, my parents did. You were absolutely right. My parents did really basically restart their lives when they were, like, 40. Um, mm-hmm. So the, that, that's something that's also been it's crazy. It's been, it's been big for me, too, you know, thinking about being in training until we're 40. Yeah, you know, I think I think about that, but I I think about my parents restarting their lives at forty, and you know we had a good life. We had a we've had a happy we've had a happy well, life too. imagine you have a career like social science or medicine, whatever, and at forty you gotta go to a new island or a new place, <laughs> and then all the license that you have doesn't matter anymore. Yes, and you have to start a new and start yeah. learning a new language. Yeah, exactly. That was and that was the biggest thing for my parents. I think was was learning English. Yeah. Um, my mom, my so my my parents are both. Um, trained as engineers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Venezuela, and uh, when we came here, my mom um, started working as a teacher's assistant. Okay. Uh, so she really she left engineering and she started working as a teacher's assistant uh, at a Montessori school in Houston. Mm. 
And my dad uh, worked as a mechanic um, while he learned English. Okay. He's a mechanical engineer, and he's always been really good with making um, stuff. Yeah, and he uh, he eventually, when he learned English, he got a job again as an engineer. Hmm. Uh, but for for several years, he basically worked in a machine shop, for sure, uh, doing something kind of completely different from what he was doing before. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's uh, they they definitely restarted completely, basically. And do you have um, sibling? No, I'm an only child. Okay, so you came with those two people. Did you all come at the same time, same flight? Yes, we all came at once. How was that experience? Like, do you remember anything? Uh, I, it's it's hard to remember because okay. so the things the things I remember the most, I think, like, um, I remember uh, the first apartment complex we moved into really well. <laughs> okay, okay, uh, and that was kind of like that was kind of like temporary. Yeah, um, but I remember it really well because that apartment complex mm-hmm. had a, a, a place that you could rent out to watch movies, and we used to go, <laughs> that. We used to go there a lot. I uh, see. Nobody in the complex ever used it, uh, <laughs> so it was like it was really nice. I know. So I, remember, I, was, I remember that. I have a stupid question, but like in Venezuela, do you use similar way of representing address? Because I remember when I came, the mm-hmm. address shocked me. It goes from the street number to the street name, and then it gets oh, yeah. bigger. Did you, how do you? Do you How's that like in Venezuela? In Venezuela, it's it's usually the street name, okay, and then a number, okay. I, yeah. I feel like that's like un un like underexplored, uh, like uh, how different countries identify location. Yeah, in Japan, they use different methods. It's based on history. Like first place that's ever built mm-hmm. gets like earlier number. Oh. So like there's no way you can identify where to go. Oh. That's pretty cool. I know. And in different places, I have different address, different system like that. Yeah. It, I like the system in the UK a lot. What is it? They're the postal codes. The po- They had like two, three digit or letter postal codes uh-huh. that associated like the combinate. There's like two combinations of three digit postal codes. Uh-huh. And, and basically one of them is kind of like uh, a bigger catchment area. And the other one is more specific. I see, so if I see. you have two of them, you kind of instantly know where something is. Got it. It's so much better than zip codes. I have no idea where any of the zip codes are. In the well, States. you know where 90210 is. I, I know where, I guess, yeah, <laughs> TV show. But like, other than that, I know where my zip code is. What's your zip code? I mean, you don't have to tell me. But. I mean, I live in Sunnyvale. I'm in 94086. Okay. So, so then you go to public school, um, yeah. UT Austin. I heard UT Austin is like really fun. And they do like hardcore studying and like parties good and everything. Like, how's it like? I had a great time at UT. Okay. Um, it was awesome. I love Austin. Um, I would totally live in Austin again. Did you go back? Would you, like, like, okay, you have a now like uh, offers from many places: Stanford, Austin. <laughs> you know, would you go back to Austin? See, the the only my only qualm of going back to Austin, I totally would. My only okay. qualm of going back to Austin is that in terms of like medicine. Mm. The biomedical research infrastructure is so much stronger in Houston and Dallas and Texas. Oh, interesting. Than it is in Austin. Why is it because it's a young, younger, younger place, younger city? I, I think I think that's part of it. You know, history is definitely part of it. You know, Houston has the Texas Medical Center, which is like the biggest medical center in the world. Yeah. And Dallas has UT Southwestern, which mm-hmm. is the huge, huge, <laughs> you know, basic research institution. Um, I think it's hard for Austin to even compete with that. You know. Yeah, uh, UT Austin has really great research, but most of it is not focused on medicine. Gotcha. Of course, now, now there's Dell Medical School there, so maybe that's changing in the future. But 
but that area is getting hot, right? Like Austin's that are such a good place in between like the major cities. A lot of people are moving out there. I heard lots of people are moving there. I mean, even when I was there in the four years, four or five years I was there, uh, things got much more expensive because so many people were moving there. Property prices were going up. Um, yeah, a lot of people from California going. Yeah, you know, yeah. for the tech jobs. <laughs> and uh, when did you start your first research? Freshman year of college. Okay, and how did that like happen? So I was because I was in um, a program called Health Science Scholars, which is gotcha. a an honors program at UT. You got placed in this thing called the Freshman Research Initiative, which I actually mm. think is a really, really great program that UT has. Um, where basically what they do is they take you take freshmen, and for one your first semester of college you mm -hmm. take a big survey course that's kind mm -hmm. of like an introduction to research. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's an introduction into reading papers and <laughs> into thinking about projects and yeah. writing, kind yeah. of like the basic stuff. And the second semester they match you up. Well, you you set up preferences for basically different projects. Yeah. And those projects have been set up by professors at UT specifically for freshmen to work on them. Okay, so is there good entry projects then? Exactly. It's not something, it's not like, you know, a six-year <laughs> project. It's not something like that. It's something that a freshman can pick up and start learning research skills, but yeah. it still be productive and useful for the lab, you know? Yeah. So, you know, so like, I think it's a really great way to get people into research. Like, because, is it correct to say that, like, if you were not in that program, you and I would not have met, right? Kind of. I, I think it, I think there's a very good chance of that. I because I I did not have a mind to really want to do like scientific research coming yeah. into it, it, I feel like like those program. So I was like I got into one of those programs at UCSD way later. I didn't know those programs existed till like when I was much. Uh, I think I was junior or something. But those programs really like kickstart people's career. Like they will connect people who have nothing to do with the field A with that field A. Yeah. And you get a bunch of other kids in your age group who's also going to do something like that. So that's like crazy luck there. And, and every research job I got was because of that position. Yeah. Like that So the first research project I did, I, I wanted to do – So what did um, you do? There was actually a lot of biology projects I could have done. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to do any of this. <laughs> why? Why? So, why? So I was a physics major when I came in. I started off with oh. physics. So I was like, okay, I want to do like physics or chemistry or something. Yeah. I want to do something physical sciencey. I want to do something quantitative. I liked math. Yeah. So uh, by the way, can I ask a quick like, yeah. question? Yeah. How was like studying in Venezuela? How was like when did you guys start going to like uh, first school and how was it like? Well, I I went basically up to like the first grade in Venezuela. Okay. Or How right before the first grade. Like, is and it like math heavy? Like, because some countries, they're super math heavy, you know? I have absolutely no recollection of it. <laughs> okay, so, okay. So all I remember is that at my school at noon, they would let us go home for lunch. Gotcha. And how far and, did you live from school? Oh, I walked to school. I got was it. Close. In Maracaibo. Maracaibo was a pretty, like, dense city. So gotcha. I just walked to school. Okay, okay. Well, maybe that kind of nudged you to physics in college. You think so? I don't know, man. Because I – actually, maybe because you just like to figure things out. You see your dad make this, make that, and, like, reason it through logically. You probably like that. 
Yeah, and I, I really liked my physics teacher in high school. I think that had a lot to do with it. Interesting. So I, I saw this nice tweet uh, recently by this guy. He says that education is the instructor. He's like, you will remember absolutely nothing from the class, but you will remember the instructor. And that <laughs> yeah. is going to change your, like, you know, interaction with that field. So that's very interesting because I think medical school is very different from that. <laughs> we don't have one instructor. We have many yeah. instructors. We have so many instructors. <laughs> okay, so Although I do you, remember some of them. Well, well I, I do too. Some of them are like very um, catchy. Yeah. Like you remember in good ways and some bad ways. <laughs> <laughs> some slides are ridiculous. Yeah, so when you, go, when you do the physics, right? And yeah. then you do this research program. You don't do biology research. You do physics research. I don't. So I choose a, pro- a project doing computational chemistry, actually. So my man. My first job was molecular dynamics, um, simulating simulations of uh, metal nanoparticles. Um, and I was literally just simulating oxygen reduction on the uh-huh. surface of different metal nanoparticles. Okay. And, what's, made, the pur- what's, and what's the purpose of that? Why, why is it important? The purpose of that is that they, the, the pro- purpose of the project was to really understand um, how the different metal compositions of a nanoparticle. So they uh-huh. had developed a way to have a nanoparticle where the core and the mm-hmm. shell of the mm-hmm. nanoparticle were essentially made by two, with two different metals. Mm. And they were, trying to, they were trying to create a catalyst I for see. oxygen reduction that was as good as palladium. So palladium by itself is the best catalyst. Yeah, it's a textbook, right? PT. But it's so <laughs> expensive. I see, I see. It's so expensive. It's not practical for industry to have I a see. lot of palladium, right? So the idea is to, and this is an important reaction specifically for like energy storage and like gotcha. batteries. So the idea of the project was if you could find a, if you could make something that's maybe like 80% as good as palladium, but it's good half nice. as yeah. expensive, yeah. then that's really great. So Did you guys succeed? Like, I'm curious now. You know, I haven't gone back and seen where <laughs> that project has gone. No, I'm so um, curious. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know what has happened to that project. I know that the, the grad student that was leading it, he's, uh, he did really well and he was, he's at university of Washington now. Okay. Uh, did his PhD there. He's probably now in Texas, man. He probably like fled. Okay. So how long did you do this research for? Like one and a half years. That's yeah. legit. That's legit. So I, I tell a lot of people that like, you do research, you got to do it for a long time. Yeah, usually. When I say long, I mean, I mean, I mean you're not going to be good at it, but yeah. like, you'll count as an experience in a substantial way if you do it that long. Yeah, and the, the biggest thing I learned from that was learning how to program. What language did you guys use? Uh, we used Python and Fortran. Oh, that's, that's, that's a really good modern combination still works, I think. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's good. So and that, then, yeah, that one and a year half one one year and a half later, yeah, I decided that I wanted to do something more like experimental. Okay, uh, I like computational work because it's like there's an instant gratification to For it. Sure, but it's not like there. I don't know. I like thinking about experiments. I like actually being hands on doing them. Yeah. I like seeing what happens in the real world. Yeah. I personally really get a lot of satisfaction from that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do something more experimental. I wanted to see what that was like. Because at this point, I didn't have any idea if I would like it. But, okay, so you're just uh, wandering around and yeah. uh, thinking about next lab, something exactly. like that. Exactly. So I um, applied for physical chemistry labs. Okay. Like I cold emailed a bunch of professors at UT. 
and ask yeah. them, uh, you know, in the physical chemistry department, yeah, looking for projects. And I found a really great mentor, um, Lauren Webb, who is um, uh, a professor of chemistry now, and she, but mm-hmm. she uh, does things that are kind of at the physical chemistry biology interface. What's that? Um, so the project that I started on, and again, I got this job because I knew how to program and I knew how to do molecular mm-hmm. dynamics. <laughs> so the project <laughs> was doing molecular dynamic simulations of uh, peptide folding. Okay. So using the supercomputer um, at UT, which is a uh, Stampede. Wait a second. Um, uh, I know Stampede. Mm-hmm. I have a, uh, I used to have a, a postdoc who SSH into Stampede. And that's, oh. is there like a Toyota center somewhere there? Like Toyota center in that, oh, that's Chicago. My bad. Yeah. Uh, that's Lap, uh, Raptor. My bad. I know like there's servers that are pretty famous. Yeah. Um, I heard about Stampede. Yeah. I use Stampede. I use Stampede all the time. And then you, you so you emailed her and she's like, uh, okay, I have some project for you. And then what happened? Yeah. So I, I, joined, I joined her lab and I kind of stayed in the lab, that lab for the rest of undergrad. That's significant. Yeah, I wrote my I wrote my senior thesis in that lab. What's um, so like special about that lab? You could have gone to any other lab. She was she was a really fantastic mentor. Okay. Like I think that um she was somebody who was y- you know young enough in her career trajectory mm-hmm. that she really had time to invest in mentoring for one. That's rare. <laughs> yeah definitely definitely i mean it's rare at stanford for sure it's so rare and it's so um, rare. yeah so she she was uh she was just very supportive and yeah. she believed a lot in um you know having like uh you know doing very rigorous science mm-hmm. and being very like systematic i like the way that she thought about problems mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so she was and, a good person she yeah. had to be a good person to, to be able to do all that yeah. And, yeah. uh, she, you know, part, part of that, you know, basically all the people, all the mentors I've chosen, I've chosen because they're scientists that I somehow want to like emulate, you know, gotcha. that I somehow want, to, somehow want to be like them. I feel like science is still very like apprentice yes. style training. Uh, it's, it's like carpentry, you know, like you, you work for the carpenter that you really, <laughs> really admire their work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. There's yeah. okay. By the way, I'm so happy you said that because there are so few people who think like that. I feel like in, I, I mean, a lot of people, they, they think about graduating, they think about publication, they think about moving to the next career stage. Mm-hmm. But like, if you see good, like boss, it's just, it's a good feeling to have, you know, you follow him or her, and then you learn about not just their science, but like how they think and how they challenge things and how they like communicate and stuff. Yeah, I think that that's really important. I mean, that's, that's what we, that's what the job is at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Like, Eventually, and, somebody else does the experiment. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yes, that's true. That's true. Well, I'm really actually um, curious about these individuals that people want to follow. So I had a yeah. really good boss. I'm going to get him on this interview one day, and hopefully you guys can hear him. He's, this guy's like genius, and he's a crazy nice guy. And what I'm curious about the qualities of these people, right? What are some of the qualities? Like, let's say three qualities of uh, Laura. What's, what's her name? Laura? Dr. Lauren. Lauren. And well, that's funny. Um, Kate's Kate's dad's name is Lauren too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so what are some qualities of her that you still think about today, and that's so like you know impactful to you? Mm. Any any dimension? 
I, you know, critical is definitely one. What do you mean by critical? I mean, you know, somebody who is like always, always a little skeptical of what mm-hmm. they're seeing, always thinking about, you know, like how can this be, how can this data be different? You know, okay. why am I seeing what am I seeing? Like, is this, you know, because of the experiment, did we find something real mm-hmm. or are we seeing, you know, an artifact or something we haven't considered yet? And when um, she's critical, how does she communicate that criticalness? Well, she, yeah, so she's, she's, she's very good at communicating it. You know, she's, okay. she, the way that she usually brings things, she, she taught me to be like very systematic about nice reading things and, and, and presenting things. So, mm-hmm. you know, lit, when we were in group meeting, you know, the first thing that she would want to know is, you know, what are the, if you're, if you're showing a graph, like what are the axes? I see. And you know, what, why, why are these the axes? It doesn't matter if you've shown the figure a million times. Mm-hmm. He wants you to go through that. You know, I remember. I see. Is this the right axis? Is this the appropriate thing? And, um, you know, she was also very big on uh, making sure that you had read the primary literature Mm. and uh, explored like what else other people had done and done Mm. before. Um, And she, you know, she had this. uh, I remember her saying in one group meeting once um, that stuck with me was uh, two hours in the library saves you two weeks in the lab. I think that's really valuable advice, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And on the personal side, was she um, uh, somehow sta- sta- did she stand out somehow? Uh, so she, she was very patient. Okay. You know, like I was really bad at <laughs> I was really <laughs> bad at everything. Um, you know, I was an undergrad. I was still learning. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's par for the course. But at that stage, if you if you don't have someone who's patient with you, yeah, you learn, then you're gonna get scared and you're gonna run away. You're not gonna finish. You got lucky. I got very lucky. That program and good mentor, good project, entry to programming, landing on the right language. Um, <laughs> yeah. You got really, really lucky there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying like everything you did is based on luck, but those three, you know shots it hit really like you know i I don't know i'm just i think those are really good um good moves that matters a lot yeah wow and then you said you went to cambridge Mm -hmm. how did that happen well the story behind that is that by the way sorry i'm I'm sorry to ask you this but you worked hard too the the whole time this one and a half year in this lab and then rest of the college can't like if we're drawing for example like work hardness graph like yeah can, like when, when, when was your up and down like can, can you walk me through college year? I'm, I'm santiago freshman what am i gonna expect <laughs> so freshman year freshman year was tough okay but it was mostly because of adjusting to college i see um you know there were, there were some things that were easy and some things that were hard like yeah. math was actually really easy um <laughs> for the most part um, until it, be- until it became about proofs. When math became oh. about proofs, it became really challenging. Walk away. Uh, but I had a real, I had really great preparation from high school uh-huh. deal in math. And, uh, for biology, I think I had very poor preparation. Mm. <laughs> so that was actually pretty tough for me was learning, learning biology, um, by bio- the biology classes. Cause you know, I was in all honors courses. So there was like, it was, a, it was smaller, which was nicer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really enjoyed those courses, but I, I had a tough time, uh, keeping up for sure. Wow. I cannot expect that from what I know about you now. 
<laughs> well, it was yeah, no, it, it it was difficult. But in terms of my entire college trajectory, uh-huh. I'd say that junior year was definitely the hardest. Okay, because that was the year that I also was planning and taking the MCAT, mm. and that was probably the wow. lowest, my lowest point in undergrad. Wow, that's hard to do MCAT prep and take junior year classes at the same time and do research. Yes, it was a tough time. That was the toughest year. Wow. And but, then senior year comes. Yeah, but that's the that's the thing. Like when, when by the time junior year ended, I was really burnt out, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about okay, do I want to do an MD PhD program or not? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I I was thinking of applying to MD PhD, but I was kind of afraid mm-hmm. of the length of training. I see. And I was afraid that I would be getting into it. I wouldn't be sure about research. And then it wouldn't be worth it, you know, or I would want to cha- or I would change my mind. Right. Yeah. And I was afraid of that. So I decided to take some gap years. Nice. Um, so that's kind of like that summer after junior year when I had my MCAT score, mm-hmm. I had my MCAT score and I was like, this is good enough. <laughs> so I'm not going to take it again. And okay. now I can decide what I'm going to do. I decided I'm going to take gap years. And for those of you who are undergrads listening to this, how long did you study for MCAT and when did you take it? How many times did you take it? So I, I studied, I, I tried to study the first time uh, summer after sophomore year. Okay. Um, but I was doing research at the same time and it was just impossible to balance the two for me. Mm. So I actually ended up pushing back the test date I had originally set. And I ended up taking it in January of junior year, so spring okay. semester junior year. Uh, and I studied over the winter break mm. before January. So I studied for about six weeks, wow. um, pretty hardcore, and then took it once, and that was it. Wow. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully never had to take it again. Wow. And then you definitely will burn out. <laughs> yeah. And then you decided to go to UK. Yeah. So I, I, How did that come? Yeah, I was I was thinking about a, my one of my mentors encouraged me to apply to the Gates Cambridge scholarship. Uh, um and I also applied to go to the NIH for the NIH postback. Mm-hmm. Uh, which if anyone listening is thinking about gap years in research, the NIH IRTA postback is fantastic. And that's like you know, that's a really really good option if you want to. Can you say that one more time the name? Yeah, NIH IRTA. Okay. Yeah, that postback program. If you're thinking about research, if you're thinking about MD PhD, that's you know, there's probably no better program. Why? Why is it so good? What'd you say? Sorry. Why? Why is it so good? Because the NIH has so many amazing PIs and labs to work with, and it pays you right. So unlike most uh, situations where you get paid. You are also doing your own, you know, you have your own project. You're doing research. You're there to do research. You're not there to be a lab technician. And there's nothing wrong with being a lab technician. It's also a really, really great experience. But it's not the same thing as being on a research project. I see. I see. So did you do that program? I, I didn't. But I applied into it and I was like ready to go. Um, and my, you know, I was thinking, you know, if I don't get into the, if I don't get into Cambridge, I'll, I'll go to the NIH. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't get the Gates Cambridge scholarship, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, but I, I did find a mentor in Cambridge, um, through the application process and he was very supportive. Uh, David, David Klenerman is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now he's Sir David Klenerman cause he, he got knighted. 
um, while I what's, was there. What's knighted? So he's he's a knight of the realm. Of, <laughs> he was knighted by the queen. Of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he uh, he was supportive and he he had a spot in his lab for me um, and he helped me get a spot in, in, in college uh, in one of the Cambridge colleges because it's a collegiate system there. But but like that's not something that you can just do. You have a visa problem, you have money problem, you have a trouble problem, you have a housing problem. Mm-hmm. It, like, how, how? That's crazy. Well, you you apply to Cambridge kind of like a graduate. You, through the process, you apply as a regular graduate student. I see. And you also apply for their funding. Uh, their funding body um so you were a graduate student there then yeah so i was a master's student there Mm -hmm. and how okay now i have many questions because first of all culture difference Uh uh-huh how is science different from cambridge and this land well i I think that the the biggest differences in culture i think always come down to labs like i think individual labs have their own culture but in in general i think that there is a much much stronger uh, focus on work-life balance in Europe and in the UK than there okay. is. Okay, I think that's a big difference. Okay, and uh, how about like um, lab size? Did, was it like US? It ranges depending on the PI, or was it like one PI you have three hundred members? No, it, it it definitely depended on the PI, just like okay. in the US. But our lab was was pretty sizable. Mm. Um, so we had probably like. In total, 25 people that were a member of the group mm-hmm. uh, and probably like 12, 12 people under my PI because mm-hmm. there was a young faculty member um, who was also, uh, you know, at the time he was establishing his own. Now he's like very established and he has his own lab and his own projects and everything. But at the time he was, you know, still uh, training his very first graduate students. He's now graduated them. Uh, but we kind of had a combined group. Mm-hmm. And That's had- like a budding lab. Yeah. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. And we had, uh, you, know, uh, you know, trained uh, very senior postdocs also in the group okay. that started getting their own grant funding and went off and, and you know. And, like, and in Cambridge, I heard that graduates, I don't know if for sure, but I heard the graduates don't have to take classes. They just got to do right. research full time. Is right. it true? Yeah. So it depends on the degree. Okay. It, it, but my, my degree was a research degree, so there was no required coursework. So, like, how's your week life? What do you do? You know, just go to lab? I went to lab. Yeah. I, I, went, I woke up, I went to lab. <laughs> um, and then I would either, you know, I would either be reading uh, or I would be um, doing experiments and then, or analyzing data. And that's it. Wow. Yeah, it was perfect. It was the, the ideal life. <laughs> <laughs> like, how often can a scientist do that? <laughs> Just go to your... Very rarely, honestly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's so rare how, how... It's so weird how rare it is to actually just get to do <laughs> science and nothing else. <laughs> I know, because if you're a grad student, you're going to take classes, apply for this, write that, write this, and you realize, crap, I have eight months to get out. I know. If I had known, I would have done a longer degree. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I like that model, man. Like, it makes sense. You got to get into that zone and system. Sometimes, like, good stuff doesn't come till you repeat something for six, eight weeks. And then you realize, oh, I got to do this, do that. Um, yeah. My philosophy about coursework is that it's not really useful until you know it, it is. I so, like, you know, I think that, like, it's much more useful. You know, as an undergrad, you should be taking courses because you don't know anything. 
Sure. But as a graduate student, when you have a project, you should take courses because you know that they're going to be relevant for that project. I like that. And, um, you know, I've taken some really, really good graduate electives here at Stanford that I've really enjoyed. Uh huh. Um, but it's because I know what my project, what I want my project to be. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I think it's kind of weird that we make graduate students take a bunch of coursework. Yeah. Before they really have a good idea of what their project's going to be. But see that you're, you're that's special because you are ahead, way ahead, right? You have experienced that undergrad research and then that independent research. So you have like more postdoc, you know, near angle of eye. Like, okay, I know kind of what it is. It's going to be 80% intro, 20% like juice. I just don't care about that juice. I'm just going to take the elective for that. No, you have that experience. Like you, you, you can't think like that because of that really awesome opportunity and what you did. I think that's really nice. And for, um, for that, for that, for that research, like, what did you do? Like, so in that, did you, it was kind of a combination of of the two. Um, and it's kind of like a theme of like all the research I do is that it's a combination of of both like computational and and experiment. So this, this project was doing super resolution microscopy, um, on uh, alpha-synuclein aggregates. So What's that? Alpha-synuclein is a protein which aggregates in the context of Parkinson's disease. Oh, it's like prions, prions kind of thing, or yeah. So it's similar. It's similar to prions. It, What's it the difference? Like prions. Um, you know, prion protein is a different protein entirely. Okay. But it's similar to prion in that an aggregate will form from misfolded synuclein. Mm-hmm. What's synuclein? Yeah, so synuclein, the protein, alpha-synuclein. Oh, it's the name of the protein. Right, it's the name of the protein, alpha-synuclein. Okay. And this this initial misfolded aggregate will template the formation oh. of new aggregates, just like prion protein does. Okay. And uh, these aggregates will, will essentially multiply mm-hmm. in the neuron, and they'll spread to different neurons, and they'll form inclusion bodies. Uh, which are, you know, traditionally known as Lewy bodies. Um, oh, I remember this. This is Dr. What Gil, Dr. Chu was talking about. Uh, yeah, so Lewy body dementia, yeah. Parkinson's disease. This is like the classic neuropathological finding um, in autopsy. That's bad. You know, you know, no one's actually really sure what the aggregates are doing. <laughs> oh. Um, we, you know, there's lots of theories about why they're toxic to neurons, but I don't think that anybody has you know, to my knowledge, definitively shown precisely the mechanism by which they're toxic to neurons. So why is it getting spotlight then? Well, it's the, the aggregation and the misfolding and the inclusion forming, it's definitely I, correlated mm-hmm. or related to the mechanism of gotcha. neurodegeneration. But it's not clear, you know, it's not the, the causality between A and B is not is not particularly uh, worked out to my knowledge, but I mean, I'm not an expert on Parkinson's. And what did you do at Cambridge on this project or on this uh, topic? So we did super resolution microscopy on these aggregates. So, so at, you looked at them? Yeah, we looked at them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's so cool. What did you do? I looked at protein aggregates. <laughs> exactly. I just, I just looked at them. For By the way, all the Nobel Prizes, you can summarize it like one sentence, right? What did you do? I made a vaccine. <laughs> what did you do? I did that. <laughs> yeah. So tell me more about that. I'm assuming interested. Yeah. So we we um, had the, a postdoc in the group who's now a professor in uh, in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, developed 
he and along with the PI Dave developed um, a new super resolution imaging technique called Aptimer DNA Paint. And what you do in Aptimer DNA Paint is that you have so you know have you ever heard of Aptimers before? Nope. So an an Aptimer is a self folding DNA molecule that forms a specific structure. Mm-hmm. It forms a G well the, you know these kinds of Aptimers form G quadruplexes, and this specific type of uh, structure can be uh, essentially um, raised against another structure to bind to it. What's so, a ra- what do you mean by raised against another structure? I mean that like, so let's say that you have a protein of interest, right? Okay. Let's say you, whatever protein of interest you have, ours was synuclein. Okay. Well, synuclein aggregates. What you can do is there's a method, um, I believe it's called Selexa. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a method that you can do to take a pool of aptamers, mm-hmm. which will self-fold into, you know, N structures, mm-hmm. right? If you take a pool of aptamers, they'll, they'll randomly self-fold based on the DNA sequence that they have mm-hmm. into a series of structures. And is that a, a random process? When, when I say random, can you, con- process. Okay, can you control that? You can control it by changing the DNA sequence of the aptamers. Got it. And you, you essentially start setting up a series of stringent selection screens. I see. For binding to your protein of interest. Gotcha. So you have yeah. a, let's say, KRAS you want to go after. Yeah, you, you will make a bunch of like interesting Lego combinations. Uh-huh. And then you see who binds to KRAS the most. Exactly. And then I'm assuming next you're just going to use that sequence, tag it with something and look at it. Exactly. Wow. Uh, well, in, in Aptimer DNA point, there's one more step. What? Uh, and so we have on the Aptimer that binds synuclein, there's a series uh, there's a there's a the, the tail end of the aptamer, if you will, mm-hmm. is a single stranded piece of DNA that has you know some sequence. Yeah. It's nine base pairs long, and the other part of the imaging modality is a free floating piece of nine base pair single stranded DNA mm-hmm. with a fluorophore attached. So there's the sequence on the aptamer that binds synuclein. Yes, and there's the complementary sequence tied to the fluorophore, freely floating in solution. Okay. And this, because it's, you know, a short DNA sequence, they'll bind on and off mm-hmm. to the aptamer. Mm-hmm. To the tail. To the tail of the okay. aptamer. Yeah. And it's like a fly. Really, yeah. And this, this is the most important part to actually get the super resolution part to work. Why? Um, because well, the way that you do this imaging is you do it in, in total internal reflection. Um, so this is, you know, if you've ever heard of turf microscopy, we're, we're doing turf microscopy total internal reflection fluorescence microscopy. And what you do in that is you have an inverted microscope. So the, the sample is on the, on the microscope, uh-huh. but the light, mm-hmm. the, essentially the laser is mm-hmm. coming from the bottom mm-hmm. of the sample. So it's mm-hmm. coming from beneath the sample mm-hmm. and the laser will bounce off essentially at, a, you know, mm-hmm. you have, remember from optics and physics, there's an yeah. angle at which you have total internal reflection. Yeah. The laser is doing that. But it's not perfect. It's not a perfect reflection, right? Right, right, right. There's actually an amount of light that penetrates the sample right. at a at a depth of about a hundred nanometers. So just just for those who have a hard time visualizing, it's like a Batman signal, right? You have this light, you shoot it, you know, on the on the clouds, right? And then lights yeah. will bounce back, and you can see the Batman can see it. But some light will penetrate through the cloud and get to maybe the the stars or something, right? So that's kind of yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a good good analogy, and it's okay. uh, it's called effervescence. 
Okay. Um, the the actual optical phenomenon is called effervescence, and it, um, or actually, wait, am I thinking of? No, I think it's I think it's called evanescence. Actually, <laughs> I don't remember. Like the band. So yeah, you from, you shoot the yeah. light from the bottom. You shoot it upwards. You hit this yeah. tail that is binding on and off against this nimer that has light uh, that has floral thing attached to it. Right. And then most of the light will bounce down. Right. But some will go uh, escape and uh, go upwards. Right, but it only penetrates you know for about a hundred nanometers of depth. So essentially, you will only uh, the light will only um, hit the fluorophores that are right next to the surface. Wow! Of the so that way, you're only lighting up. Wow! Quote unquote, lighting up a subset of the fluorophores that are actually in the solution. Does wow. that make sense? It, it 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 makes sense. So basically, in that Batman analogy, suppose airplanes flying. I'm sorry. I'm just going to push this analogy. You shoot the light again. You know, you you, you light this up. Somebody uh-huh. says SOS. You know, bank robbery. You light this up, and lights go hit the uh, hit the cloud. Most will bounce back down. It's whatever. But then some light will penetrate uh, through the cloud, go up. But it's not going to go too far because light loses its energy. Mm-hmm. And then if an airplane happens to be next to that light, next to that Batman sign right above the cloud, 100 nanometer in your protein world, then you'll actually be able to visualize that airplane. I think that, yeah, I think that's right, yeah. Wow, that's dope. Yeah, so what the, what you get is you get a massive reduction in the background fluorescence mm-hmm. because you're only lighting up a minority of fluorophores. And the on and off uh, function of the, you know, nine-mer, uh, binding on and off from the aptamer to the to, to to freely floating in solution, that is creating blinking, mm-hmm. which allows you to resolve the image in time as well wow. as in space, and that is what allows you to reconstruct a super resu- a super resolution image. So a resolution that goes beyond the physical diffraction limit of light. So what you're saying is because there are a bunch of these uh, protein blocks bound to your target, some are shining at different times than others but you know when things are close that uh, the fluorophore will light up so what you would do is later use a computer to uh put together that super shining phases and then patch up this structure of your target protein right exactly whoever came up with this is crazy well we mourner here at stanford came up <laughs> and he won the nobel prize oh he won the nobel prize wait for this work for, for super resolution. Oh, that's what. Yeah, so he he was the he was the, I mean, he and I want to say Stefan Hell and I'm gonna miss the last third person who was involved in this, but there were actually many many groups who were kind of simultaneously on the cusp of this. And but wow. W. Warner did some of the very fundamental basic work before anyone else really got it to work experimentally, um, and he won. And for that, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. And he's that's like that, that, that. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. that he had a dream it's like oh i'm gonna go to neptune or something like <laughs> you know i'm gonna put a bunch of proteins or dna sequences and I cover this protein up with it i will shoot a light well this this method of protein imaging with fluorescence aptamer dna paint was developed by by our lab um in cambridge oh. uh, we Mourner's work was the first you know super resolution work mm-hmm. 
but it, it was it was based, it was not the exact same system or imaging Fine. modality. He was, he was doing something different. But the the basic idea is the same. The wow. ability to resolve a fluorophore in both time and space allows you to mathematically reconstruct a super resolved image. That is the idea that one WE Moyer the Nobel Prize. That's amazing. It's, it's a really beautiful idea because it's so once you actually like, you know, if you see the math, if you think about it, if you look yeah. at the experiment and how it's done, it makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, you know, it's one of the you know, everything in retrospect looks looks easy, right? Wow. So you did that to look at so basically your lab uses um, can I think of your lab as just technology lab? And one of the application of it was this protein aggregate yeah wow and my, my project was to study cytonuclein aggregates you know sp specifically the ones that form very early on in disease uh -huh. we will we hypothesize that they form very early on in disease because they're really really small and what did you find and, out hmm? what did you find out um well the there are a couple things that were interesting you know what one of the things that um was was in that, you know i think was really interesting from my work is that uh, By the way, I'm sorry to like talk about your work after a Nobel Prize work. So <laughs> this job is going to be ridiculous. But... It's totally fine. It's totally fine. But one of the things I thought was really interesting about my work is that one of the things that I've been continuing to work on, and um, you know, I, I hope it gets published one day, is there's a we think that there's a, I think that there's a critical size mm -hmm. at which aggregates kind of have like a thermodynamic point of no return. Mm. You know, there's a point where they're kind of just forming and unforming and forming and unforming, and then there's a point of no return where they're no matter what they're going to grow into a fibril, mm. or they're going to grow in you know larger so that they can template the formation of new aggregates. Mm -hmm. and that starts kind of like the runaway expansion gotcha. of of synuclein aggregates. Uh, is it because like uh, if you if you plot a distribution, you have like a, a one mode before that size, and then another mode? After that size, I can imagine that. That yeah, so some some something like that, and I you know at the time when I was thinking when I was doing this research, things that were really popular, you know, liquid liquid phase separation was really popular mm -hmm. in the literature, and everybody was talking about it, so it was on my mind. Um, and I I thought that you know this was a process that was governed by basic physical principles, and I always thought that it was really interesting that this biological phenomenon that we see in this disease is basically governed by nothing else than like basic chemistry. <laughs> um, I thought that was really interesting. Wow. Uh, but that, you know, we're still, I'm still thinking about that and working on it. Maybe one day it'll be, it'll be published and I'll be able to share it. Um, How long did you stay in that lab and Cam two years, Cambridge? One year. One year. Oh, okay. okay. And then after that, what did you do? Did you, I, I applied to medical school. Okay, so this is 2018, 19? Yeah. And then how's your journey like after that application? So were you in school when you applied? Uh, I, when I started the application, yes. And I had graduated by the time it was over. Okay, nice. And then um, can you tell us about your, your process? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I applied to only MD-PhD programs. So a after this year, I was like convinced that research was for me. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, all right, I'm going to apply to only MD PhD programs. I think I applied to like, I want to say 21 is the number I okay. applied. Um, is I that an average number? Um, I think that the average is somewhere between 15 and 25. I don't know. Okay. I haven't looked at that data in many years now. But I think that it's a it's probably a little above average because I'm really neurotic. Mm -hmm. uh, but but mm -hmm. it's it's probably around there. Yeah, I think that's pretty typical. 
And then uh, how was your experience in that application process and results? Honestly, the application process was was great. Like, I think that it was really gratifying in many ways mm-hmm. to go on the interview trail. Yeah. Um, but I recognize that not everybody's process goes that way. Um, and it can it, it is definitely a very challenging and stressful time, especially at the beginning, because you you know you don't have any interviews. Like you mm. think like oh you know did I you know am I am I not going to get in you know all mm. that stuff. That's like I had those same thoughts as well. Basically, a week after submitting my <laughs> application, I I feared that I had made some like terrible terrible <laughs> mistake on my app, and then they were going to just throw it in the trash. <laughs> so my, my advice to people is just don't read your app after after you submit it. Like. Whatever grammar mistake, you know, it's Whatever. hopefully you caught it before you submitted it. But it, it's like, it's, um, that was, that was a source of stress. But when I started getting interviews, then I calmed down and mm-hmm. then I was actually very enjoyable from that point on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed going on the interviews, talking to faculty, meeting people, talking about science. It was a lot of fun. Did you, did you get a, like a custom made uh, suit for this trip? Or? No, no, I, I had my, um. I had my my one suit. I have one suit. So I wore that. <laughs> okay, I don't think that's true. You have amazing outfits. Oh, thank you. But I only <laughs> I do only have one suit. <laughs> okay, for those of you who don't understand uh, what we're talking about here, Santiago dresses well every time, everywhere, <laughs> even ice cream shop. <laughs> I have borrowed pens from him in lecture. I remember clearly, and this dude gives me this fancy pen. From like James Bond movie, and he had two of them. You gave me yours, and got another one. You remember that pen, the brown one with the gold on it? Like, I don't remember this. You, you let me borrow this pen. I didn't want to return it, but I had to return oh, it. Oh, the pen, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that Santiago has only one suit. I do only have one suit. Wow. I should get another. I can't fit in it anymore. I'm too, too much. COVID. You don't need it. You don't need it. Yeah, we all work from home now. Yeah. Wow. And then why did you pick Stanford over other schools? Yeah, that's a good question. So at the end of the day, it basically came down to three places. Like it was between University of Washington, MSDP. It was between University of Pennsylvania and uh, Stanford. And Stanford had waitlisted me at the MSTP, Uh but accepted me MD. Uh And uh, Penn and Washington had both accepted me MSTP. Oof. So I had these three. These are three places I really loved. And I really loved a bunch of other places as well. But these were, these were the last three. Where is your home when we're, when we're in this phase? Is it Texas? Is it UK? I'm in Texas right now. Okay. Yeah. And who, who you live with? Are you, I need to know like your psychology. So. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I'm, living with, I'm living with my partner uh, oh. in Austin. Um, and... I had actually, when I, you know, basically I had made up my mind almost to go to Penn. Uh, and then I was at a burger place with one of my friends from college in Austin. And I was like, you know, Stanford's not going to accept me anyway. And then, so I won't have to make this decision between MD and MSTP. Yeah. Because I already knew the, the MSTP had waitlisted me at this point. And then that very night I got a phone call from Stanford saying they had accepted me. So it was like, I had to make a decision. Wow. Uh, about MSDP versus MD. And I chose Stanford for the science, basically. Okay. And uh, the science and also my gut. Mm-hmm. It was like 
I went to the I ended up going to the Penn and Stanford second looks and uh I really liked both the programs. I really liked both of them. I liked I actually do like Philly a lot. People give Philly a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. Philly's great. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I liked Philly a lot and it's actually a city that you can afford to live in, so it's got it's a it's, it's like cheap New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that feeling. But I I loved it. I liked being there. I, I love Philly too. And that program is so well run. You know, like like Skip Brass is an amazing MSDP director. Well, what what is, what is so so you how, what do you mean by well run? Like they have so much in like you ask Skip Brass uh-huh. about any student that's ever graduated from there, and I'm sure that he could t- like like immediately recall oh. like what their med school experience was like, who they worked for for their PhD, oh, if it was okay. a good lab or not, what papers they published. <laughs> Like he just has an incredible passion for this, yeah. and like you know, he's he's all over. The, if you Google MD PhD programs, you'll find something about him because he's mm-hmm. you know basically he's definitely one of the main people in the country who's promoting and organizing. So he's MD PhD influencer. Yeah, definitely for sure, for sure. Wow. Um, and there's you know he's not the only great program director, but he definitely was one of the reasons that I felt that Penn would be a really good decision because I felt that would be in really good hands, you know, yeah. someone who has a lot of experience training a lot of physician scientists, seeing them go from point A to point B, yeah. you know, making sure that they, they get out, you know, alive, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that that's really important. So yeah. uh, I had, I, you know, that was one of the reasons that I really liked Penn. Um, and, I, the, you know, Stanford was more of a gut and science decision. Um, I really like, you know, I like living here. I like California. Mm-hmm. I like the weather. I like the environment. Yeah. I like the smaller environment at Stanford. Yeah. Um, I thought for graduate school that would be better for me uh, than a much much bigger environment like you know like Penn or Washington, which are these really huge massive. Um, so I thought that's you know, and then I liked the so much cutting edge science here at Stanford. Mm-hmm. You know, science Stanford is a smaller school. But there's a lot of really cool, you know, very like risky yeah. um, science happening here. Yeah. Um, and I really liked that. I thought if I was going to have an opportunity to do that kind of stuff, it was going to be during graduate school. And what did your uh, parents, your partner say about this life decision? My, my parents were really supportive. Um, By the way, they must be so happy. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. They're they're very happy and you know they're they're not super familiar with the way that higher education works in the u.s yeah <laughs> so they're like you know we trust you to figure it out <laughs> i i feel you man like i feel you by the way did they know about your major when you were in college yeah yeah they they okay. they, they, they never really understood what plans exactly was, <laughs> but they they kind of vaguely understood that i was doing like science yeah science and also <laughs> like liberal arts wow by the way, uh, in this whole process, where is liberal arts for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I see medicine as like my continuation of studying humanities and liberal arts. Okay. Um, I see medicine as, you know, there's, you know there's, that, there's that eternal question about, you know, is medicine an art or a science? Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think that's an appropriate question. But I, I think that medicine is a much more... Uh, is I think that the humanistic part of medicine is yeah. what drew me to it. Yeah. And I think it's really important. Yeah. So that's something that I think when I 
learn about medicine, it's not just a science for me. When I see patients, I'm really thinking about the human connections, the human element. Mm-hmm. Like, why does this kind of patient have these needs? You know, what mm-hmm. are the special needs for this person? Why, you know, what existential threat does this disease pose to them other than like the threat to their yeah. well-being and their 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 physical health? What does it pose to everything else about them? Um, I think those are really important questions that you need to have a kind of a humanistic yeah, yeah, yeah. perspective to really think about. Um, health disparities is another place that I, you know, I'm, sure. I'm really passionate about health disparities. And I think that it's something that science could do a better job of actually describing and, and trying to tackle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that also, I think, requires a humanistic perspective to try to think about what are the different structures in people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. not that's not a scientific question so much as a, as a humanistic one, I think. Um, you know, there, there are scientific elements to it, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not like doing a Western block. You know, I think you have to have <laughs> an understanding of what matters to people uh, okay. to be able to do that. But if you go to Stanford, mm-hmm. then you have to do MD only. Mm-hmm. So what did you rational, like what, how did you reason that? Yeah, that, that part of the reasoning is that, you know, at Stanford, we have the internal MSDP application process. Uh-huh. And my and we also have the Berg Scholars Program, mm-hmm. which for people listening, it's a six-year MD with essentially a three-year research component. Um, so that, yeah, that's the very, that's the one-liner for what Berg is, a little more complicated. Than that. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I have these two great options to being a physician scientist in front of me. Um, and... Thankfully for undergrad, I had a full ride scholarship yeah. um, and I didn't have a lot of debt from grad school. So I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm in a fortunate position of not having a lot of debt right now. If I pay for two years of medical school with the financial aid that Stanford gave me, uh, which was thankfully also very generous, then you know I'll still be in a good position after the MD PhD and I won't feel like I'll be crushed by debt. Yeah. Um, so that was part of the decision process at the time. Uh, now, I will say this. The, the internal transfer process for MSTP, you know, I, pro- probably not just at Stanford anywhere, but definitely here at Stanford, is much more complicated than I had anticipated. How so? And, well, so, how, so how does it work? So how does it work? So the, the way it works is that you have to find a mentor and then you apply into the PhD program and you apply, you write a project proposal for what you intend to do for your PhD and you apply to the MSTP. So you're kind of doing two applications simultaneously. You're doing the PhD program application like you were a regular graduate student and you were doing your PhD proposal application, um, having already figured out the project you want to do for your PhD. So you have to do this. If you want to apply it at the earliest possible moment in your trajectory in your career mm-hmm. you have to figure this out essentially by the end of first year okay you know if you don't have the mentor by the end of first year or at least the beginning of second year mm-hmm. you're not going to have enough time to develop the project to be ready to apply the second half of your second year into the mstp now the the actual fact of the matter is that most people here at stanford in 2020 are getting into the mstp internally after during their third year after their second year wow that's a lot yeah because they, they have to you know some a lot of them applied twice mm. to get in one of the reasons is that it's very competitive because it's very desirable so there's mm. lots of people trying to get into it 
And the second reason is that, you know, there is just no time as a medical student to really do all of this extremely well, right? Mm. Um, I that, agree. Uh, that's been my main source of stress, probably. That and money, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. that and money have been my main sources of stress. But if you get to switch over to MSCP program, uh, I'm assuming your part, part of your MD tuition will be paid for, right? Even if you get in after. Well, the, the third and fourth year will be paid for. Okay, so that's good. That's a positive thing, isn't it? That's a good thing. Yeah, that's great. Okay. By the way, the year after us, I heard that they have no debt, or so, I heard something about something, how like Stanford got donation, and oh, yeah, the financial aid became more generous. Yeah, that was. That was what, is it? Is it a real thing? Yeah, that's a real. That's a real thing. The financial aid became <laughs> more generous the year after us. So we got COVID, and we got the last. <laughs> well, well, we 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 see some of that money too. Yeah. Uh, we we saw some of that money too this year. Did we by just way, the first year, like the first years did. By the way, how sad were you to not be able to go to those launch seminars? <laughs> well, very sad. I like I love the launch seminars. So I was writing down like my logic about like why I liked campus, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever I reasoned through, like the main force is the launch seminar. Mm -hmm. Like it's such an important thing. Free, delicious lunch. <laughs> yes it was wonderful <laughs> i was a perk of going here yeah now we don't have any of that and the seminars were, were usually really interesting yeah, yeah yeah so at stanford now did you decide what research you wanted to do yeah i'm, I'm applying into the cancer biology program okay why cancer biology well i yeah, clinically it's what i think i'm gonna end up doing oncologist uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what kind of oncologist I'm going to be because, you know, there are many different kinds. Yeah. But I think that I'm, I'm pretty sure that I want to be able to work with cancer patients. Okay. Um, and, you know, can't, the, the number of interesting problems in cancer biology, you know, cancer biology touches almost every kind of biology. Yeah. Uh, so I feel that no matter what, I'll have really good training and a lot of, you know, in a very foundational part of, uh, biomedical research yeah and um but clinically i think that i i definitely will end up in one of the oncology specialties and what do you have you thought about just doing md because you get to graduate faster mm -hmm. you get to do so many things like just faster right because yeah. think about eight years and plus residency and you're still getting paid like really low lower than what you your skill set what you're capable of Right, right in terms of the market value of you right and then you'll get old and all these things and then you like okay so i thought about this right and it didn't hit yeah. me till like you know after i got into school and stuff but it's 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 pretty scary it is scary right it definitely is and scary. there were many times i realized if i just did md i can seal the research i can get to my you know finish my you know residency faster get to that higher uh, default automatic salary faster and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. How, how, what's your take on that? Yeah, my my, I you know these feel. I had these same, same exact feelings, same exact thought process. I think everyone who's trying to do the dual yeah. degree is thinking about it. My personal take on it is that you know I I want really really good scientific training. My worst fear I is not being old. My worst fear is being a postdoc or a fellow. And not knowing how to run my own research project, I, I think see. that is much that is much more scary to me than being older. And the reason is that you know I think that 
unfortunately, uh, science is very competitive. Yeah. And getting grant funding is very competitive. And uh, it takes a lot of experience to do, you know, pick a project, to do it really, execute it really well, yes. uh, to be, you know, experienced writing grants, applying for grants. Grad school gives a, you a nice protected time to do all of those things yeah. with very few responsibilities. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's true. Like that protected time is where you actually like improve as a craftsman or craftswoman to get good at something really, really well, like climb up that skill ladder and have some kind of like um, superpower, you know, when you're done with that. Yeah. Or, you know, at least be able to competently run your own project, know what it takes to see something from the beginning to the end. Yeah. That's valuable because if you, if you know, if you start, you don't do that well during your fellowship or your postdoc, that's, that's going to make it very difficult for you to start up your career. So you and, do want to do research. Like even if you're done with this, you want to do research. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, another part of it is in a, just, just to be real, really like, you know, I'm not, um, from here, yeah. you know, I'm not from the U S um, you know, I don't, I don't have professors in my family. I don't have physicians in my family. If I'm going to get a job in science, it's because my science is really good. Yes. You know, it's not going to be, you know, and I have a lot of really great mentors that will go to bat for me, which is also great. And a tremendous privilege also to be able to attend like Stanford and Cambridge and have, you it's know, both. The, yeah. the prestige of those institutions also helps, you know, we can't, we can't lie about that. that That's true. That is helpful in anyone's career. Um, so I have all of those things, but you know, for me personally, I feel like I have to do, uh, I have to show a really strong record because it's not Mm -hmm. like people are going to say, Oh, you know, he's this Nobel prize winner's son. So he's going to do really Mm -hmm, well mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, that's not, I don't think my career is going to work that way. I have to prove myself. Yeah. Um, and the PhD is a great opportunity to do that. Uh, And, and this is the good, like place for you to do that too. If you do anything great, people will know if it's right. here more likely than other places. So can you tell me a little bit about your current research? Yeah, so my, my current project is um, in liver cancer. Okay. And it's looking at a population of hepatocytes um, that produce uh, abnormally high levels of telomerase. Mm-hmm. Uh, so telomerase is the enzyme that elongates telomeres, mm-hmm. which are the ends of chromosomes um, and provide stability for mm-hmm. the genome. Um, and when we lose telomeres, mm-hmm. we actually, you know, obtain a bunch of genomic instability that can lead to mutations uh, that, or genetic changes like deletions or translocations, mm-hmm. um, recombinations that can lead to disease, cancer, aging, death, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these mouse hepatocytes in our model uh, have a like a small population of hepatocytes in the mm-hmm. liver, like one to two percent, uh, that produce high levels of telomerase. And we're interested in looking at these cells to try to understand, uh, you know, what makes them special, essentially. Um, so my project over this past year has been doing ATAC sequencing mm-hmm. um, on these hepatocytes, which is a, a type of sequencing where you're able to determine the uh, accessibility of different chromatin regions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in the cell's uh, DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm working with a postdoc who's been doing single cell RNA sequencing on this. And do you do ATAC on bulk or single cell too? 
Uh, I'm doing bulk ATAC right now. Gotcha. So you combine, so it's the same biological sample or, or similar places. You do bulk ATAC and single cell RNA. Right. That's very interesting data. Yeah, and we want to try to understand what these cells are. Um, you know, are they playing, you know, are they the cells? You know, we have, the, the, we published a paper. Well, we didn't. I, I wasn't in the lab yet, but the lab published a paper mm. in 2018 um, that showed that these cells were repopulating the liver uh, in, um, in an entry model. So, oh, entry model. Okay. Yeah. So these, these cells in the, in the mouse model were actually repopulating the liver. They had done lineage tracing on I the uh, telomerase high expression cells. And, um, you know, that was very, that was a very interesting observation because uh, even though the liver is, you know, very well known for its regenerative properties, mm -hmm. it's not yet understood which kind, if there's a special kind I of see. hepatocyte that has this ability or how it's turned on I see. one hepatocyte versus another. That's not completely understood. Right, right, right. Um, what is the origin of the cell of the liver's regenerative capacity? We know it's the hepatocyte, but we're not exactly sure why. And we also don't know where liver cancer comes from. So we actually don't know. That's crazy, the man. Cell of origin for liver cancer. That's um, crazy. So this is this this cell type is interesting to us for those for those two reasons because we think they might be this, at least yeah. they might provide clues, you know, yeah. on the path to finding those. So you're saying that these cells, the cell X, they populate injured liver places, and then they could also be the source of liver cancers, at least a subtype of it. Right. They could be, um, you know, people, we, we talk about cancer stem cells. Yeah. They could be that cell population for the liver. We don't, we don't know that, but you know, we, that's a hypothesis. Right it's now. crazy that we don't know the liver cancer cell origin. It's just crazy yeah. to me. It is wild. It's, that's it's wild. Like a very, <laughs> very common solid tumor. <laughs> it's like admitting an MDPhD student and realizing that this student like, is like 67 years old living in North Pole. Like you didn't do that basic check. Yeah. And the thing. Um, wow. That's you know, no one's found a liver stem cell. And that's well, because, and part of that is because the liver is so good at regenerating. I mean, that's, that's kind of the wild, the thing that's so wild to me about the liver is that it's everything famous for its regenerative ability. <laughs> and we don't know what the stem cell is or if it even exists. I think it does. And I bet my money on the uh, macrophages. The Cooper cells? Yeah. I bet $10. Cooper, okay. Special Cooper cells right next to the good blood flow. Uh huh. Is going. Okay, I, I, I think just crazy wild thought. You know how blood vessels branch? You have lobules and stuff. Yeah. My guess is that depending on the lobule zone, zone one, zone two, zone three, Cooper cells are going to be different. And then those okay. that are at the like the T intersection, the hiding on the side of that intersection of the lobules or blood flows, mm -hmm. I, I have a feeling that those will be a good place to be a stem cell. <laughs> that sounds like a nice. I mean, being near high blood flow is a great place to be a stem cell yeah i don't know about zone one or zone three is better I don't, i'm not sure but i'm sure that like structure mm -hmm. gives liver some kind of uh gives those cells some some special but you remember when we started about lung the lung stem cell the special one that sits right below the mm -hmm. uh, i forgot <laughs> i already forgot but that specific cell mm -hmm. i have a feeling the liver has something like that too the the there's some good evidence from a lab at ucsf um, they, they did lineage tracing on hepatocytes in the liver as well. 
but they did something very interesting because they randomly tagged hepatocytes. Wow. So they did a, they had their, their way, their, their way that they did this is that they, they randomly labeled hepatocytes <laughs> and they essentially found that the, the hepatocytes that divide, mm-hmm. they're not just, they're, they're randomly distributed in the liver. They're not localized to any particular area. Wow. So if there are liver stem cells, they are not localized to a specific part of the architecture. That makes sense too, because you can lose a lot and then a local structure can reproduce what the mass does. It's like drinking a sip of milk versus a glass of milk. It's milk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very convenient. It is kind of convenient, but it doesn't sound, it must have another chapter to that. Is there a superstructure that we don't know about? Okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I didn't have to think about it. I, I don't know if anybody's actually done a, an atlas of the Kupfer cells to see what different types of Kupfer cells were. Well, zone one is in every single part of the liver, right? What if all the cells in zone one is more stem-like than zone three? I think that Roel Neuss uh, had done some work looking at this for axon two positive cells that uh-huh. tended to, I, I want to say, organize around the paraporal region of the liver. Okay. Um, but I haven't looked at that paper in a while. But the and the you know the more recent work has shown that they're they're basically randomly distributed. I'm very interested now. I, I think I think <laughs> I think there's something else going on. Wow, that's really cool, man. This is really really cool. So, is this something that you want to do for your PhD portion? I think that I definitely want to keep working on liver cancer. I think liver is fascinating. Yeah. The liver is so cool. Yeah. And liver cancer is a big problem. We, oh, yeah. we have two treatments for liver cancer and they're both of them are not that good. You know, what? well, three treatments. If you catch it early enough, you can have surgery and that's curative, which is nice. great, right. You have liver transplant, uh, which is not as good because you have to deal with transplant, yeah. avoid organ rejection, all of that. You know, it, it's, it's curative, mm-hmm. but it comes with all the risks of transplant. Yeah. And if it's too big or if you can't get a, a transplant uh, for whatever reason, the drug that we have, because you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it does kill you pretty quick. It's pretty lethal. It's, it's got a yeah. life expectancy of at most, you know, it can be like two years for hepatocytes or carcinoma. Wow. It's a quite a deadly disease, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have one drug. We have one drug for it. What is it? Uh, uh it sounds a, new. It's a mono. It's a monoclonal. I want, actually no. It's a. Oh, it's it is it is newer. It's an. But yeah. I forget exactly what its mechanism is. Sounds expensive. Sounds like my insurance won't cover it. <laughs> <laughs> so depressing, but I know all these reality wow. modern medicine. But that it's it's uh, it's not curative for sure. Yeah. It can buy you time, which is great. Mm-hmm. But it still, I think, only extends uh, progression-free survival or overall survival okay. by like six months, I think, I want to okay. say. So it, it buys you time, which is great, but it's not its not as good as other therapies we have. We can do better. We, and we have to do better, right? Yeah. Because we, we need more drugs for learning cancer, for sure. And I think part of it is we don't know where it even comes from. So how are we supposed to target you know the the driver you know, we, we we have an idea of what some of the driver mutations are but how do we target them in a way that's rational yeah to actually you know cure this disease or make this disease better i think that we could do better um uh you know transplant's great i you know, ideally we can live we can grow a bunch of livers 
in the lab and then just transplant them into everyone who needs them. But, you know, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Especially because this is a, a disease that has a big global burden because it's associated yeah. with hepatitis. Yeah. Which is a you know big global disease. The, I really hope you figure this out. Like you identify, like what did you do, like Santiago, for your um, PhD? I figured that the cell that becomes liver cancer. Oh, I, I really hope I cure liver cancer too. I think that would be really, I think that'd be a good PhD. That, like if you can identify the cell origin and then add some like way to go after those, spare the others, you will help so many people who are desperate. Like the potential, you know, if you just, if this is like lottery kind of thing, I know the chance is low, but it's possible, right? It's, it's something that good to aim for. Yeah, and a lot of people are working on it because it's such it is an important problem. Um, I think that any I think that's why I think liver cancer is just a, a rich field. I think there's a lot to, that can be improved. Yeah, uh, we can have a lot of better therapies than we than we currently do uh, yeah. to give people more. You know, even just have more survival so that they can survive to the transplant that they need. Yeah, it's also a big win because transplant is actually curative. It's just, it just takes time and costly. You know, it takes luck. It takes time, and it's you know, it's not an easy thing for a human to go through. Aim high. Find that cell or cells. Oh and yeah, ideally, just cure it with a pill. That'd be awesome. Yeah, just, just <laughs> ideally, multiple pills maybe. Wow, and for this project, do you do mostly um, bench work, or are you able to also do some of the uh, programming that you've been doing? Well, I've recently been trying to like have my first foray into looking at sequencing data. Okay. So that's like, you know, my first attempt at, you know, working with sequencing and yeah. you know, going through all the steps of processing those data and, and visualizing them. So I'm, yeah. I'm learning that for the first time, but mostly and it's been bench work. So you start with the attack six output, like fast Q file from that or yeah, that's yeah. tedious, man. <laughs> it's, it's okay. One, one thing that it's been around long enough that there's a lot of good, sure. uh, code already existing for it what, what one advice like i've done this a little bit longer so i, I want advice that i have for people mm-hmm. is don't get stuck on like learning the best i don't know like rna sequencing pipeline or a taxi fi- uh, pipeline that's going to get you the data that you need to start analyzing mm-hmm. like i know some people want to like get, learn really well which is really important but a lot of these methods are just small variant from each other and what it's essentially doing is mapping to some kind of transcripts or gene and giving you some score. Mm-hmm. And uh, the different methods will give you different p-values for this, uh, all that detail. But I think what's more important is once you have that like reading the scores, you do the good analysis. Um, yeah, that was a digression, but I just wanted to save you some time. And, and also use like most, most like well, uh, pop, most popular one. That's the most supported. Yeah, there's there's lots of really good supported ones for ATAC now. It's very nice because the ENCODE, the ENCODE yeah. database has so many, you know, has has so much data and also so much uh, documentation. That's and another, another advice: if you can avoid using NCBI and try to stick with ensemble references, do it. <laughs> okay. Because. Uh, they, I think, do a little bit better job in like getting the gene names right, up to date, have a good systematic like naming structure. Mm-hmm. Then, but you know, what do I know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow! So that's good. So you can generate your own data, get the data, and analyze it, and you can combine it with the single cell data of the RNA seq of that cell population too. 
and you can make some kind of conclusions about them. And then if you have uh, um, ideas, you can go back and do more experiments. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the most exciting part, I think, is wow. after, after we actually are able to really understand our sequencing data and going yeah. back and doing the biology to try to understand what's going on. I think that's the, mo that's the most exciting part, right? Is understanding the mechanism. Well, it is for me anyway. I think <laughs> some so people too. really love the sequencing. And then, for, and then for this, like a cell population, what's your control? Like you have to compare that with something, right? Well, how do you, wait, suppose you have the sequencing thing figured out. I give you a score per transcript per gene. Yeah. And what's, do you have another sample they can compare that with? Yeah, so we've we've sorted the hepatocytes for tert express for telomerase. Oh, expression. beautiful! <laughs> so we have we have we have low, we have medium, and we have high. Wow. Medium is kind of a population we don't really understand. It might actually just be more low. Yeah. Uh, but we have essentially low and high that we're looking at. Tert low, tert high. Mm -hmm. And this population is tert high. The one that we're interested in is, but the the control, the, essentially the quote unquote control one is tert low, but we also are, you know, I have also done this in, in uh, human hepatocyte yeah. cell lines, uh, human, human, human hepatocellular carcinoma cell lines as well. Wow. That's not precisely a control, but it uh, is an HCC cell line. Yeah. So, so it can give us an idea of yeah. what the H, you know, well, how does it compare to the, the cancer cell? Right, 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 right. Wow. And it'd be also nice to compare with like, um, Another system is tert low, tert high, because there must be another tissue that has tert low, tert high too. So they can subtract. I, I guess if you do find a difference between tert low and high, you can also say that that's a universal difference between tert, like tert's backsplash, right? Tert's, tert's uh, noise. Mm -hmm. That's not the signal particularly. So I, I guess my point is when you analyze the genome, transcript, all these things, right? You're looking at everything. Yeah looking at everything and then most of the things that makes things different is not the subtlety that make them really um, problematic like some cancer cells i guess they are super different right they're obvious but some other cancer cells like it's the differences are smaller than the difference that you would get from comparing them against normals or maybe there's another tissue with tert low tert high um, that have that uh, difference sure so that's really that's really cool let me know how it goes. Like, I want to know. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll let you know what happens. <laughs> and you can do some screenings after that. You yeah. Know? Wow. That's really cool. And I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I just want to ask a couple of questions about how's your medical school, you know, experience so far? Um, it, overall, it's positive. Overall, it's good. What's that like little uh, uh, uh in your voice? <laughs> Well, you know, there are parts of it that are just a grind. Yeah. Uh, like there's, uh, no, there's no getting around the amount of stuff you have to study. Like you can't, there's just no getting around it. You had just have to do it. Do you remember and, signing up? Do you remember signing up for this amount of memorization? I don't. I don't either. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. I mean, I, I kind of knew to expect it. Cause I, you know, I had taken gap years. I had seen my friends go through medical school. Yeah. The ones that went straight through it. So I kind of knew what to expect. And even then, I didn't. Expect, right? <laughs> it's just it's it is just part of parts of it are just a grind that you can't get around. Yeah. It's and, almost done, though. It's almost done. All, for us, all, it's almost done. Yeah, just one more week. Finish up this quarter. One more, two more weeks, and then you have the winner. Mm -hmm. uh, get those done, and then done.
At least that's what we hope. I think ideally what I would have done if I was going to design a curriculum is uh, I think the one-year preclinical curriculums are are preferable. I I agree. The shorter that preclin is, the better. Burning out is crazy, huh? Yes. Like the, the, the mental... Yeah, and study. Yeah, you know, we have to study for step one now too. So it's yeah. and it's COVID. Yeah, yeah. Wow, are you going to do remote next quarter? No, you want, you want to be there because yeah, because uh, your partner is there working too. Yeah, my partner, my partner. For sure. And how's that like uh, having a partner that you've been with for so long? Have to make life decisions together. Like how, what's good and what's challenging? Oh, it's I me. Mean, it's great. Cause it's like a source of support that you yeah. have all the time. Like. There's no way I would have. Yeah, I don't know what I would be like in school without that level of support, especially during COVID when we're like actually literally trapped. <laughs> yeah. Um. It would you know it would have been so 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 difficult. Uh. So it's like it's for me it's I think almost almost entirely been positive because it's such an important source of support for me. That's nice. Otherwise, and it's also a way to like. Um, it's a know, friend, you know. It's also yeah. It's it's also a way for not to be medical school all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because like if I if I was if I was single, I would live on campus, and most of you know basically everyone I in, I would interact with is a medical student. Yeah, and it would be medicine all the time. You'd be stressed. Which, you know, I love medicine. I I'm glad I'm in medical school, but it's not you know when no, no nothing should be your entire life. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah, so it, that's also I think another positive aspect of it. And if you the have negative to- aspect is that rent is really high in the yeah. bay. Yeah, well, the housing prices there should go down, but still millions. Of dollars. Yeah, not enough for me to buy one. And if you had to pick science versus clinical stuff, science really okay. <laughs> not hard. Wow, I I, I, I love I I do love seeing patients. Okay, I really do love seeing patients, but science is much more intellectually. Um, engaging okay i don't know i i'm gonna i i should get roasted for this because you know i'm a med student i don't even know yeah <laughs> so i i shouldn't be calling no, it not be you. engaging it's just different it's different the way that you think yeah uh in clinical medicine versus in science and are you in terms of breath versus depth for science i know we're talking abstract here mm-hmm. breath or depth you want you want to be scientist okay depth okay yeah because in this modern world where you can collaborate with people across the world, gotcha. you know, with the internet and with all, you know, with traveling and just like that, with how easy it is to contact experts in other fields and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it to try to know everything. Yeah. Uh, and science moves so quickly now that if you try to like even know two things, mm-hmm. you're not going to keep up with one of them. Right. Okay. It, it's just, there's things move too quickly. There's too much to know. It's just, Stick with being really, really, really good at what you do. A great example of this, I think, mm-hmm. is David Sabatini. Who's that? David, David Sabatini is, um, I want to say that he's at the Whitehead at MIT. Uh, but he's an MD-PhD. He didn't do residency. He went straight uh, postdoc faculty. Oh. And um, he's an MD-PhD. He, he discovered and kind of elucidated and is basically the world expert in uh, the me- uh, you know, mechanistic target of rapamycin, mTOR. Wow. And uh, everything his lab does is mTOR. 
And yeah. he has such, well, not everything actually. He has other things that are also really cool and interesting that are not mTOR. But uh, a lot of the stuff that he does is mTOR. And he's figured out the mechanism for mTOR1 and mTOR2. <laughs> and, and, now, and now he like, he posted a, he, he posted a cake on Twitter <laughs> that was like mTOR2 because I like see. he published a paper on the mechanism. And then like on to mTOR3. Yeah. Like, you know, the, like he is like taking that depth of expertise. Yeah. Really finally elucidate yeah the things that he knows best and really understands which is this particular system the mTOR pathway he's new he's nuking the mTOR oh yeah and you know his twitter bio says mTOR man i think <laughs> you know, what, what what's yours what's yours what would be yours santiago boom what's yours what, what would be bio? yours no 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 what would be your um biological field or that niche i, I have no idea i can't i i would love to find it you know i but I, I want to I would I would aspire to be that kind of uh, scientist where I have a really a depth of understanding in one particular can I, path. Can I suggest you? Yeah. Because like we can't throw out your background, uh-huh. which is seeing stuff. Yeah. Like wouldn't it be amazing to live visualize all the flows of the liver? Oh yeah. And you can do that in a small scale. Just somehow use some kind of a vision to like visualize we know like liver has big blocks like eight or nine blocks or something right mm-hmm. and they have lobules and if you zoom in like you can actually see the structure so if you can like see the things flowing inside and you get to like from there kind of infer where the cancer cells are and where the damages are mm-hmm. nobody's done that oh i um, something I really do want to do in terms of single cell, single single molecule. Imaging, yeah, do that. Look at them single cell level. Right. Is um, telomerase activity at single wow. molecule level. That's something I really want to do. What's that? So like just, you know, because like being able to measure the activity of telomerase at the single molecule. Oh. Um, so that you could, so that you could better study yeah. uh, what telomerase is doing in an individual context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's there's lots of reasons for that, but I, that's something that I actually hope somebody does. I mean, I want to do it. Do it. Uh, but I don't know with what time I'm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Uh, but I think it's a really cool. I mean, idea. that that's hard. That's not going to be something sequencing based. Maybe RNA based because, like, if you perturb a single cell, that cell's like messed up now. You know, you have to be delicate. It's changing, and you can't mess it up. You have to let that change happen naturally, and just like write it down profile what's happening that's wild that's wild well santi this interview went really fun for me okay great thanks and uh i'm dozing off slowly (laughs) okay but i feel like i knew you since the interview we met like during the interview i think we met at the interview and second look and we were classmates and all that. I feel like this interview gave me more um, like uh, information about you behind your uh, busy busyness. Um, Great. Thanks. I, I enjoyed it too. And I completely forgot to ask you. I wanted to ask you, uh-huh. um, which is, I don't know if this is rude, but it's about your eyes. Yeah. Um, that was my first impression of you. Other than that nice brown coat, brown suit they were wearing with the blue sweater, yeah. I remember exactly what you were wearing um, at that ice cream shop. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So can you tell us about, I mean, can I just ask you what happened? 
Um, it's congenital actually. So, okay. so I'm, um, I'm blind in my left eye. Um, and my, I have microphthalmia in my left eye. So my, my left eye never fully developed. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, my left eye that, uh, that people see is actually a prosthetic. Okay. Um, okay. But that's, it's congenital. So no, nothing really happened. There's no story really other than I was just born this way. Okay. But that's, um, that's unique. And I can imagine your life being different a micro level, micro level because of that. Yeah, I mean, binocular microscopes don't work for me. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I've, you know, I've been able to drive. I've been able to, like, play sports, do all the things kind of normally. And I think it's because it was congenital mm-hmm. and my brain kind of adapted mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, from a very early age. Because, in the, you know, at my, at my optometrist that, that made the prosthetic, I've met people who have lost their mm-hmm. vision, you know, After. one-sided, you know, in life mm-hmm. later in life and it's very difficult for them to yeah. be able to adjust especially with depth perception mm-hmm. uh, because obviously binocular vision is important for depth perception but my, my you know my brain grew up this way mm-hmm. uh so i it hasn't you know i i don't feel that it's had too big of an impact on my life mm-hmm. um it's made it really annoying to get a california driver's license which i'm really mad oh. about but uh that's that's really the only thing Wow. Did you have to argue with somebody? Because uh, I have to go through a bunch of really annoying, dumb paperwork to get yeah. people to believe that I can drive, which, even though I've been driving for... You drove me, man. I, I know you drove me with that stick shift red car. Don't, don't tell the state of California that. <laughs> because That's I, in my dream. In my dream, you drove me. <laughs> and I we did some... My yeah. Hey, Santi, appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for this interview. And maybe we can, after you do some research, figure out what's up, do a follow-up and talk about that cell population once sure. you have some results. Sure. All righty. Thank All you, right. Santi. Thanks. Bye. All right.